to Sakpa? Well, we've got a lively group here. I can't even wrangle them. Now you can hear me? Good afternoon. Welcome to Sakpa. We're happy to have you here today. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. I'm your moderator. We acknowledge that the events taking place here today are on the lands of the Blackfoot people and the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship to the land. We commit to our utmost to assist with efforts to mend and heal past and present injustices. We thank, we have, we thank Shaw Spotlight and also record SACPA presentations and use excerpts from PowerPoint if applicable for their daily broadcasts. Sorry, Carol. Today's menu will be served at the back at 12.30. Please place $14 for lunch in the little kitty as it comes around. Students, $5, $2 if you have coffee or tea, and nothing if you're just here to listen. Uh, please assign someone to your table to make sure the correct amount is in the bowl. The format of the meeting is, after I finish talking to you, we will have our speaker until 12.30. Then we'll have lunch with the speaker's table going first. At 1 o'clock, we will begin promptly with questions and answers. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Peter Imhoff, who is a physicist, if you can imagine, who is leading the family center. Now, argue, his talk today is, is community support for children essential? Arguably, governments have a mandate to keep our most vulnerable citizens safe, including young children. Recently, the province of Alberta and city of Lethbridge have initiated significant realignments of their prevention and early intervention services for families. Peter will speak, will explore these changes from the perspective of an agency that provides preventive services on behalf of governments. The goal is to continue a wholesale and productive discussion, wholesome, and productive discussion about how we protect children in our community. Let's give Peter Imhoff a Sakpa welcome. Thank you, Appreciate it. The mic up here. Thank you, Beth, for the invitation. Uh, that's, that's very sweet. Uh, are we good? Um, so yeah, thanks for having me here today. Um, my name is Peter Imhoff. I'm the executive director of Family Center. And uh, I will speak on behalf of that organization. But I will make a, an effort to take a wider lens and to look at the, at the bigger picture. My goal today is uh, to contribute to an, an old conversation. And it's about how we as a society raise our next generation. It's an old conversation, and it continues to be relevant. As long, as long, I believe, as long as we have a little bit of humanity, we are thinking ahead, 
and we will be thinking ahead about how our society, how our next generation uh, will come through. And I think the land acknowledgement uh, that uh, Bev just made is particularly relevant for this topic for a variety of reasons. Um, and what I would emphasize at this point is that I believe the indigenous perspective on family is actually a, a, very, a very healthy one and something that uh, can, can really teach us. And so having a stronger indigenous voice around how we serve our children and families, I think uh, could only benefit um, that conversation. So first I wanna start with just the, the necessity of uh, supporting children. It's a biological, ne biological necessity. <clears throat> it's not something that's optional. We can't choose not to do it because our children would simply not survive. And we, need, we know we need to provide support for, for infants and little children that is um, often provided by parents, by the biological parents. But that doesn't have to be that way. It can be other family members, extended family members, foster parents, our community plays a big role in how our children are raised. The woman on the right-hand side is not the mother of the child in her lap. And she definitely contributes uh, to the growing up and health and well-being of that child. The key piece, what happens in the early years, is, is brain development. We have one brain, each of us gets one, and we get only one for our whole lifetime, and we need to build it up at the beginning. And that is what happens in those early years. In the first six years, there are some very, very critical windows uh, that are available to us humans where we have an opportunity to, to grow physically, socially, emotionally, and cognitively. This is kind of a, a bit of a funny scale here on the screen uh, that starts in months and then turns into years. Uh, but the first six years have uh, a lot of critical windows. Ongoing support during this time is critical for a healthy brain for the child. And when we build a strong foundation for that child, then that child that will turn into an adult that can rely onto this strong and solid foundation. Our brain is, develops and is shaped based on experiences that children and we as adults also have every day. It also, we also come with our own genetic setup. And there's an interesting piece about nature and nurture. Um, one of the key, key phrases here is epigenetics. There's a whole other presentation if you wanna go down into this. We have an excellent neuroscience department um, and they can speak to that at length. And I just want to focus today on the fact that building, developing a brain is not just what children do every day as soon or even before they are born but it is something that we as parents, as families, and as communities do. We all have a role to play. When, in an extreme case, um, a member that's, an, an individual that's external to the family inflicts violence on a child, that will leave a trace. And whether that person is biologically related or not, doesn't matter. And in the same way, we can, we can support children across biological uh, reaches. I have one slide where I'm gonna go a little bit into the dark side and uh, I'll raise the topic of adverse childhood experiences. And that is 
trauma, specific types of trauma, but quite, quite severe trauma um, that our minors, our children can be exposed to. So abuse, neglect, family dysfunction, including things like separation and divorce, addiction, and violence in the home. This trauma shapes the brains of children. There is a, through epigenetics, there's a mechanism how our brain development responds to, these kind, to this kind of trauma and how it sets up unhealthy mechanisms in our brains that will lead those who have experienced those adverse childhood experience 10, 20, 30, many decades later to have negative outcomes. So there's study after study after study, this is well researched, um, that documents just what the negative outcomes are. The highest correlation of children um, that, have that have experienced adverse childhood experiences is with suicide. It's, it's many times more likely, I'm not just talking 10%, I'm talking 10 times more likely for somebody with four or more adverse childhood experiences to uh, kill themselves. There are similar ratios, less severe, but suicide is the strongest correlation. Then we have addiction, and then we have engagement in violence, either as a perpetrator or as somebody who suffers violence. Again, there is a whole talk into this um, that I invite you to explore more. Again, we have really knowledgeable people at the university um, um, on that topic. They can provide a lot more, a lot more detail. But that's not where I want to go today. This is it's not going to be a cry fest here. I'm not going to talk about the adversity and how it leads to, to horrible things. But I will focus on strengths. I'll focus on how we can accomplish, achieve positive outcomes. In my profession, we call this strength-based approach. That's how we work with our families, and that's how I'm going, that's how I'm looking at the world. The strong, strong outcomes, healthy brain development, healthy, he healthy outcomes, wellness as an adult, they depend on having protective factors available to us, having sustained, supportive relationships available to us. And who provides those? It is those around us, those people we experience, and that's often family members, um, but it can be friends, it is our natural supports, and those are the long-term supports. Those are the people we know for years, we know for, for decades, and they continue to support us. That's the one side, we have the natural supports that are long-term, but then we, have, we also have the professional supports that can be available to us, typically on a shorter-term scale. So those are the support workers, the early childhood educators, the parent educators, a counselor. I, have a very, I can have a very strong relationship with a counselor. It's not going to be lifelong, but it's going to be transformational for me as an individual if it's a, if it's a good counseling relationship. A language that's often used around this is resilience. And there's a resiliency scale metaphor where the adverse childhood experiences are negative experiences, they are on, on, on the risk side of things, they increase the likelihood of poor health outcomes. And then we can have other factors, the positive, the protective factors, that increase the likelihood of health and wellness. And then depending on, on how that balance turns out, each individual um, can um, Will, will have life outcomes depending on that. 
What are positive factors? They are very, very simple. This is not complicated stuff. This is serve and return relationships. This is turn taking in a conversation and being positive and appreciative and respectful with someone. It's as simple as that. And that works really well for young children when you really listen and respond to a young child. And it also works amongst anybody. You know this around your tables as you engage in respectful conversations. Now there is a piece where that fulcrum sits off that scale. Is it more to the left? Is it more to the right? And that is partly a, a genetic uh, piece where for some people um, experiencing adversity can weigh very, very heavy on them and they have a very hard time re recovering from that. Whereas other people have more built-in uh, resilience and it's easier for them uh, to overcome that kind of adversity and move forward. Now, the good news is that this is not just fixed. We come with a certain outfit in, from our genetic um, uh, setup, but this fulcrum can be moved. And that is what, at the end of the day, what counseling is really all about. To find a different way to look at your world, to look at the adversity that you're experiencing and understanding how can I respond to that. So we can move this fulcrum really early on. We can work with little children, zero to six, and make that already happen and teach them resilience. Resilience is a skill that we learn and we can teach that at a very early age, but we can teach it through the early years, through adolescence and through adulthood. The earlier we do it, the easier, the more effective. And the key piece again is, it is very, very difficult to pull yourself out of that hole on your own. If you have support, if you have professional support, a counselor or a support worker of some kind, or a natural support, somebody in your family, somebody in your friendship network who can help you with that, it's a lot easier. So we need community. We don't just need to be stronger ourselves. Resilience is not something that lies in us, but it is something that we harvest from around ourselves. So again, the point about our natural networks, family, friends, neighbors, peers, professional supports, and they are being funded, subsidized through the province. Um, for example, parent-led centers, Alberta Health Services, schools, in-home supports, and a variety of nonprofit organizations. And then we have family and community support services, which are co-funded through the province and the city that focus specifically on prevention. So those are some of the funding streams um, that keep that alive. And that gives me an opportunity to very briefly touch on family center. Um, our vision is healthy children, healthy families, healthy communities. Our mission is to empower children and families through programs, resources on connections. We have, uh, we have very clear values that, uh, that align with that. And we offer a variety of programs, early childhood education programs, zero to six, um, where we really create opportunities to, have, um, to build resilience in young children, um, um, about, uh, to offer parent education classes and family support, more about um, uh, the reflection and building resilience in adults. And all of that on the basis of information and referral, because we cannot do it ourselves. Um, a, a variety of service providers are required for that. 
and I'm glad to see a couple of uh, friends in the industry here uh, represented, and I know you've had a presentation on, on Play the, uh, the other day. Um, this all holds together. We're not doing this ourselves. Um, where are we located? We're in downtown, easily accessible through the bus or, par or um, um, visitor parking at Melcross Center. We run community kitchen program at a North Branch, which is on site uh, the Interfaith Food Bank. And we have a branch on the west side, Coalbanks, at Coalbanks Elementary School in the Copperwood neighborhood, where we have a, a really beautiful outdoor space. Um, but we are not alone. I want to really emphasize that. Um, we are part of an alliance of service providers that have banded together under the name Upstream Lethbridge. And um, there is a variety of um, organizations here. And the upstream metaphor is, is also instructive, and I really want you to consider that. Um, imagine you have a picnic by the river somewhere by the old man. And all of a sudden, you see a little child floating down the, down the river. And apparently is screaming their head off and a horrible scene. What do you do? You jump in the water, you rescue the child and uh, feel really good about yourself if you've saved a child. That's quite wonderful. But then the next child is coming floating down. And what do you do? Well, you jump in the river and rescue that child too because what are we going to do? And then there are more and more children coming down the river. And at some point at your picnic, somebody will realize, hey, what is going up? What is going on upstream that all those children are getting chucked into the river? And rather than me going out checking on the children that are floating down in agony and fear of drowning, I'm going to go upstream and check out what's going on up there and make sure that no more children get thrown into the river. In this presentation, I want to emphasize on the universality, I want to emphasize the universality of the support for children and families. We all agree on this. As I said, it's not a choice. It is a biological necessity. And all people from all political sides agree on that. So in March 2019, um, the NDP Children's Services Minister, Larry Bay, she issued um, then the Prevention and Early Intervention Framework, which is the core document uh, which really moved forward a lot of the work that we see today. Just recently, on February 3rd, our, our Premier, Jason Kenney from the UCP, very clearly spoke um, in support of young people. And the Ministry of Children's Services has seen a continuity since January 2019 on implementing and developing those changes that we're seeing rolling out today. So, I really want to use this unifying issue as an opportunity to go beyond political divisiveness. I want to make three observations that I want to leave you with today that I think are relevant questions that we as service providers need to consider and that we as citizens also need to consider as important decisions are being made. The first one I want to talk about is the prevention versus crisis. So that's the essential thing from the upstream metaphor. Um, there's prevention or there's crisis. Those are, that's the, that's the key <coughs> distinction. But then the language becomes interesting. And there's a whole other language to describe the space, the grayness between, between prevention and in crisis. The first one is early intervention. So that's often formulated as when first vulnerabilities have presented themselves. Aha, what does that mean? Is that a, like a small crisis? And so it's not just pure prevention anymore, but we already have a little bit of a crisis. Then prevention gets 
gets formulated in different ways. There's primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. Okay, so what is that? What are we talking about now? Primary is really for everyone in order to reduce risk and build protective factors. Secondary is when there's imminent risk and there's recent vulnerabilities have shown up. And tertiary is we are already being affected and we're trying to avoid that things are getting worse. All that can be called prevention. Sounds complicated and confusing? Yeah, it probably is. And so I want to make sure that when somebody says, we are investing in prevention, we are very clear about what that means, what does this person mean, and does this person speak the same language uh, that I do. Crisis always creates pressure on systems. We want to serve those crises. But how and who is upholding those preventive services and draws the line and say, no, we cannot give everything to crisis management. We also have to go upstream and see what we find there. Second piece is about practice and evidence in preventive family support. It's really critical and super important, and I say this as a service provider, to measure outcomes, prevention, and to, to measure outcomes for prevention services. It is very important. It is not easy. It's complicated, but it is not impossible. First complication is prevention is the absence of something. If you're trying to prevent child abuse, you're working towards the absence of child abuse. Now, how do you measure the absence of something? Can be done. You need to know what you would normally expect, and then you look at what's actually happening, and then you see the difference. But it's not as easy as checking, okay, there are needles on the ground now, and I can count how many needles I collected this morning. Often what happens is that we are measuring something positive, something we can see, and not the absence of something, like activities that we are convinced and we have clear evidence for that they create protective factors for families. The second piece, often you would like to see, hey, before we sit here and life is horrible, and then we do something really awesome and life gets so much better. And we'd like to have a pre-test and a post-test and the post comes out stronger than the pre, and look at this, this activity worked out so well, I can show you the numbers, isn't this fantastic? That works really well in physics, in particular. Doesn't always work so well with humans. And the example I personally like is the chiropractor. So I started seeing a chiropractor, and if he had done a um, entrance test with me, on a scale from one to 10, how do you feel about your spinal health? I don't know, probably like seven or eight. Um, you know, it's not perfect, I have a little bit of a pull there, but other than that, you know, I, I think I'm fine, right? And then he's telling me everything about spinal symmetry and how I should stand on both feet, and uh, he makes an x-ray and shows me my spinal asymmetry, and I'm thinking, oh, well, this isn't good. And, but then he adjusts, and he tells me what I can do and how I can step, st stand properly in front of an audience. And then six months later, he gives me a post-test. So on a scale from one to 10, how do you feel about your spinal health? I will say, well, I think I'm probably something between a seven and an eight. I'm doing quite well. I've learned a lot, and, um, but I still, I know I, I, I still stand like this every now and then, and I shouldn't be doing this. So when you look at it as an outcome measure, this means, first of all, chiropractice had no impact on my health. And the chiropractor has no idea 
whether he actually can do changes, whether he can change his practice to do something better for me. So there are two aspects. Is it making a difference for the client or the patient in this case? And is it, does it make, can we improve how we do chiropraxis? Can we improve how we do child and family support? There are two sides to this, and this is very important to keep in mind. And often that gets lost. Here's what, here's what we measure. We measure attendance, simple, clear numbers, how many people in the room, that's it. Number two, changes, outcomes, self-reporting services. As flawed as it is, we can ask people how, on a scale from one to 10, how do you feel about your understanding of child development? And then we can also hear the stories from people. What does it really mean for you to be here today? How does that make a difference for your life? But what we need to do is we need to find measurements that help us learn to do a better job the next time we do the same thing, and where we document clearly to our funders the impact we have had. Finally, I want to come to the learning social infrastructure. Social infrastructure is a metaphor that's being used quite a bit. Uh, what, does it, what does it lead us to think? Well, infrastructure is something big, heavy, complicated, building bridges, train, railroads, stuff like that. So it's costly, right? And it takes long to build. We know if, the city if somebody decides to build a new bridge, it's not going to happen quickly. We also know that infrastructure needs maintenance. And so as we are making significant changes to our social infrastructure, we need to be really careful about that. I want to use that metaphor to ask for caution. As we change existing and develop new infrastructure. So what is happening right now? I already mentioned in March 2019, the government of Alberta issued the Wellbeing Resiliency Framework from Children's Services. A month later, the city of Lethbridge issued the Community Wellbeing Safety Strategy. Um, contracts were terminated by the province for prevention and early intervention contracts on November 6 for March 31st, 2020. Um, the city did something similar where contracts were extended until June 30th, uh, 2020. So a lot of contracts were brought down and now proposals have been, requests for proposals have been put out uh, to create new social infrastructure. So the province of Alberta had a deadline on January 20th and the city, the deadline was February 7. New funding will be in place on April 1st. That's really coming up soon uh, by the province and July 1st by the city. And so as those decisions are made, these are big decisions, those are around about 60, 70 million dollars um, that are being invested and that are where decisions are being made. I want us to ask how does this new social infrastructure negotiate the boundary between crisis and prevention? How does it build accountability? And how does it build learning systems that can continuously improve and stay relevant? And how can you as a community contribute to that? How can you get involved? I want you to talk about child and family supports and how that's done. And I love that you create this forum. Uh, thanks for doing that. We don't have to wait for the government to fund those things. Family Center 
stems from an organization that was built in 1980 as Parents' Place. And who built it? It was a young mom with her first child who was shocked and appalled by the lack of services for parents. And she went out and said, I'm going to make something happen. And she did. What an amazing story. Bonnie Picot is her name, by the way. I think she lives somewhere in Calgary right now. If you ever meet her, give her a pat on the back. We don't have to wait for government. We can also make our, we can also contribute to our community, and I know many of you do in a, in a variety of ways. So financial contributions are important. Um, and I'm speaking on behalf of Family Center, but I think pick your favorite nonprofit service provider, pick Family Center if you like, but there are many ways to contribute. Many organizations have fundraisers, um, take donations, and um, that's one key piece. The other one is talent. Um, I know many of you have experience as board members, and um, volunteering can be in a leadership position, but can also be um, volunteering by connecting with families and supporting that way. And there are many community events that are specifically built to support families and to support children. Feel free to support those, either by flipping the pancakes or talking about it and promoting it. So thank you for your time. And just as the final moment where I'm just going to speak about Family Center, I'm looking forward to conversations and discussions about how we make those very important decisions. And I think they need to be had in the public domain. They need to be coming from a perspective of how do we together do the best for our community and not from a political, um, not from a political agenda because we all have the same objective on this one. And I do invite you to come and join Family Center as a supporter. We have a fundraising gala come up on March 12th and uh, we currently have a call out for uh, board members. Um, so please spread the word and uh, support your favorite nonprofit. Thanks for your time today.